You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Many of you have experience with cancer, right? Either a family member or maybe you um, or a friend has had cancer. And, and this, so this isn't probably a foreign illustration. This is one of the leading causes of death in the world. But hypothetically, let's say that, that this week, doctors discover that you have a tumor and it's cancer. And you learn that you have, it's fatal, that you have a late stage form of cancer. And the doctor in this scenario is likely going to suggest something that we're probably all familiar with called chemotherapy, which is literally pumping your body with enough radiation in hopes that it would kill the cancer but not kill you. Right? It, it, it's horrible. But, but that's the goal of chemotherapy. And as a patient, you actually have some options. Um, you can listen to the doctor and submit to the treatment, right? That's option one. That's the option most cancer patients take. But your other option is that you leave the hospital. And then you have two new things that could happen. One, the cancer will slowly march on or quickly march on, and soon you'll die. Or the second option, if you leave the hospital without taking the treatment, is that you'll see your body begin to shut down and you'll get sick and you'll flee back to the hospital and submit to the treatment. The chemo is hard. You feel like it might even be worse than the death that you would have had out there, but maybe, just maybe, you survive. This morning, we talk about something hard, right? Something that behaves like cancer. It's called sin. Sin plagues humanity like cancer plagues humanity, and it only gets worse unless we fight it. And the way that the church fights sin is through something called discipline. In Corinth, in this region that Paul's writing to, um, we see and hear Paul talk about in this chapter a man who is engaged in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And because of this sin, Paul says this man needs to be excommunicated, which is another scary word in the church. It means that he's, he needs to be cast out of the body of believers. He can no longer commune with the people. He's excommunicated. Right? He's no longer part of the local body. And many of us think, or, or might be tempted to believe, that because we don't struggle with that specific sin, like the sin of being attracted to your stepmother, that this might not apply to us, but we would be wrong, right? There are real unrepentant sins that cause people to be excommunicated from the church. We will talk about that. We'll talk about the church discipline and excommunication this morning, and we will talk about when we do it, and we'll talk about what we hope for when we do. And my heart for this is that you would leave here more encouraged towards holiness, more in awe of the mercy that God has for us, and more equipped to disciple one another toward Jesus, pushing each other towards him and not sin, away from sin. So knowing that, let's look at this text again and see what's happening in Corinth. As I said, there is a man, this sin, sleeping with his stepmother, and that's being reported outside of the church in Corinth. So word has spread that this man, even to where Paul is, is engaging in this this sin. Excuse me. And Paul starts out by rebuking them in this section, saying, 
you've, you church have elevated yourself above moral law, above God's law, but worse even still is that you've elevated yourself above pagan law. He says, the, the pagans, the people outside the church, Rome doesn't even tolerate the sin. And yet you do. And then he follows it up with this line, are you arrogant? Are you arrogant? So think about what arrogant is. It's puffed up. It's proud. An arrogant person thinks they are really, really important, and they expect others to share that opinion of themselves. Right? Arrogant people aren't humble. They're not conscious of others' feelings or attitudes. They walk with a swagger that disregards everyone else. Right? They don't apologize. They blame. So the description of arrogant here is really one of the first times we have this word in the New Testament, and it's, it's kind of an invented word that means the opposite of love. In, in 1 Corinthians 13, later in the same letter, Paul will go on to describe love in one long, famous verse that you've heard, or one famous section that you've probably heard at a wedding that says love is patient, love is kind, love is faithful. And he says in there, love is not arrogant. These things are opposed to each other. Arrogance and love are in opposition. So Paul tells Corinth, you are arrogant, and he means you aren't loving him. Right? They fail to love each other. They fail to love this man when they put themselves as a church above God's law and above pagan law. They say, yeah, there's this sin, but we're the church. We accept everybody. Right? We have freedom. We are above all of that. And Paul says, you're arrogant. He says, you don't love him. And then he gives them instructions clearly on what to do and how to not be arrogant, i.e. how to love them. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And some of you are thinking, like me when we read this, that doesn't sound loving. And if you think that's unloving, then listen to how he continues in verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. So not only remove him, but deliver him to Satan. What, what is this? Right? What, how, how is this how we love somebody? Because most of us in this room would never say, yeah, man, I just, I love that guy. I care for him. Let's give him to Satan. Like, to Satan, the devil. Why would this be loving? Well, it, it's right here. It's not divorced from this next line. We hand someone over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. For what? In hope that their spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Don't miss that. Paul is saying this. Outside of our belief, outside of this fellowship of believers, is Satan's realm. He has authority there. It's diminished authority, but he still has authority until Jesus comes back. And so, when we put someone who's inside the church, outside the church, it's the ultimate wake-up call. It's the ultimate shaking of somebody, right? Why don't they want the chemo? It's the last resort. 
then leave and hopefully you'll realize your sickness and you'll run back to the hospital. We never would use this. We would never use excommunication as a punishment, right? It's a last resort. Just like we never use chemo as a punishment. It's to save the body, not destroy it, but to save it. Putting someone through church discipline that ultimately removes them from their membership is the church saying, and Paul is clear here, right? He makes sure he doesn't say elders remove him. He says the whole church assemble and remove him, right? It's, it's the whole church saying this person doesn't know Jesus in a way that saves. And so let's put them out so they're not fooled into believing something that isn't true. And hopefully they'll realize their sickness and run back. Is that loving? Of course it is. To put someone through that now so that they might experience eternity with God in fellowship and communion and worship is loving. right? But, it, but it's only loving if we have Paul's eternal mindset. That it's worth uncomfortable, seemingly from our culture, seemingly bad things like excommunication. It's worth that uncomfort to save someone's soul for eternity. Of course it is. If we believe that, then it is loving. And it's unloving to do the opposite. In the short term, we're drastic so that a soul is saved for the long term. It's worth it for flesh to be destroyed out there so that the soul dwells with God for eternity. That is loving. Right, so that, that's what is happening in Corinth. He kind of goes on to talk about why the church should be pure, etc., etc. And he says, purge the evil from among you. It's loving. Right, so that's what happens in Corinth. But what, what do we do in Houston, right? Like, what do we do in the church now today? And I know, like I said, I, I know you're probably not struggling with this specific sin. I hope not, that you're, you're sleeping with your stepmother. Um, but this, this, in, in telling us how to treat this specific sin, Paul is telling us how to treat all sin. But here's the thing, we all sin, right? So we don't, for a, for a second, at Sojourn, any of us, none of us suspect that we don't struggle with sin. I struggle with sin. So when is discipline necessary? When is discipline appropriate? And when, obviously, like, the question is, when do we utilize this drastic step of excommunication? When do we put somebody outside the body? Well, first, we should know and remember that the word discipline is not divorced from the word disciple. Right, so um, Sojourn says it all the time. We're about making disciples of each other and of our friends, neighbors, and coworkers who don't know Jesus. One of the ways we make disciples of each other is we discipline one another. Right, we have to unhitch discipline from punishment. We need to reclaim it as a discipleship process. Discipline. And no one has a problem with the word discipleship. People ask all the time in membership classes and things like that. What do y'all do for discipleship? But when we say that we do discipline, not in answer to that question, but in general, you'll say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Y'all do what? Discipline is not divorced from discipleship. Most of the time, uh, what does that look like, right? What does discipline look like here? Most of the time, it doesn't go beyond this scenario. Some of y'all are about to feel, realize that you've been in discipline before at Sojourn. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. 
You go to a brother or sister and confess that sin and you repent from it, which means you turn from that sin. That is the simplest form of discipleship. Right? That we, we just confess and repent. We're confessing from sin and we turn from it in order to walk in holiness. That is discipleship. It's simple and beautiful. I know some of y'all do this throughout the week because I see y'all do this throughout the week. Some of y'all do this with me throughout the week. But sometimes we're blind to sin, right? And so maybe this has happened for you too. But sometimes we sin and we don't even recognize it in ourselves. And in those cases, a brother or sister might come to you and say, look, the, the way you handled that situation did not reflect what I know you desire to do, which is to be like Jesus. Right? There's something beautiful and holy about living in this way with each other that we can be accountable to one another is unlike a lot of things in this world. Right, That we might be so concerned and out of love uh, for one another, go to each other and say, you behaved in this way and I know you don't want that because I know you have a new spirit that wants something else. That happens too. And that is the discipline that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18. But there's more. Sometimes that brother or sister comes to us and we say, I don't think you're right. I, I don't think I have a problem in that sin area. And there needs to be escalated involvement in that scenario, right? So then maybe one or two or three brothers or sisters comes to that person and says, look, you're, you're trapped in sin here. Um, and we want to help you out. And so maybe it ends there, right? Maybe that's when we wake up to sin and we realize um, oh man, like, you're right, and you guys care for me. But finally, if that doesn't work, then Paul tells Corinth what to do next, and Jesus tells us the same. If there is a sin that one of us is so blind to that we don't, we don't even acknowledge that it is, it is sin, so that would be called unrepentant sin, um, then we get to the point of excommunication. We remove somebody from membership from the fellowship of believers. Why do we do that? It, it's, it's pretty simple. Unrepentant sin indicates that a person isn't saved by Jesus. Right? When we're saved by Jesus, we get a new spirit that convicts us of sin. And we get community that also convicts us of sin. So simply put, followers of Jesus turn from sin when brothers and sisters call it out of them. The Holy Spirit convicts us, he, he binds our conscience, and he gives us community to help us fight sin. And Paul goes on, as I said, to talk about how the church is set apart and how we practice holiness and, and we purge evil from us and from each other day by day by day. And if a time comes where any of us as members refuse to cease in our sin, then we do something drastic. We put them outside the church membership for what? In hopes that their soul might be saved. In hopes that they would say, I am sick. I do need treatment. I do need help. I need brothers and sisters to hold me accountable. I can't stop. Let me be clear here. The, the authentically repentant member, the member who is authentically confessing and turning from sin, if they stumble a million times, will never be excommunicated from this body. 
right? The authentically repentant member who desires fellowship will not be cast out. If your deep desire um, is to be killing sin through conviction and communal accountability, then we'll never get here. Even if your flesh is battling you every step of the way until your deathbed, we won't get here. But Paul says, um, we, do, we do excommunicate out of love when we know that flesh needs to be destroyed, when we see brothers and sisters who, who aren't following Jesus. It's out of love that their flesh might be destroyed. And here's what he's talking about when he says flesh, because that, that might need to get worked out. It's common in the Bible for, for us to refer to our, our flesh as our sin nature or human nature, evil, uh, the evilness inside of us, right? So when we say our flesh is put to death in Christ, that's what we're talking about. And in doing so, when our flesh is put to death, like we do this in baptism, right? Your flesh is put to death and you raise in new life in Christ. Our desires change when we have the Spirit. We're given the Spirit, our flesh is put to death, and the Spirit changes our desires. So when we act out church discipline with each other, we are destroying our flesh. This is what Paul is talking about. And in reality, even if those of us in the room who are in Christ, even though our flesh is being destroyed, it still needs to be finally destroyed. Right? Here's what that looks like. Two options. Again, I'm going to use two options a lot today. Two options. One, our flesh can be destroyed in community. So that means we're doing all of those things that I, I, I talked through earlier where we're confessing sin, repenting of sin, uh, holding each other accountable when we sin and we're blind to it, right? That's where flesh gets destroyed. And for a lot of us, that will be the rest of our lives. The other option for flesh to be destroyed is that you're excommunicated, that you're cast out of the body and your flesh gets destroyed in the realm of another. But flesh will be destroyed. Right? Verse 13, Paul says, God will judge those outside the church. Those outside the church will have their flesh judged by God or our hope is that they will become aware, that they will wake up as sleepers, they will, they will become no longer blind to their sin and they'll run back to the church, run back to the cross. Let's read what Paul says in, in 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Again, stop being arrogant. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that it may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice or evil, the flesh of malice or evil, but with the new unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, the spirit. Right, so Paul writes this. Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If you aren't familiar with, with what Passover means, it's this. Uh, here's some Old Testament history. The Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt, and God brings several plagues to Egypt in order to urge Pharaoh to let his people go. One of those plagues is that, uh, one of the drastic ending plagues is that the firstborn child of everyone in Egypt will die. Except God tells his people Sacrifice an innocent lamb, put the blood on the door, and the spirit of death will pass over your house. 
and the Jewish slave's firstborn will not die. So the Passover feast was celebrated annually in light of God saving the people through sacrifice. So Paul says, our Passover lamb is Jesus. Right? The opposite, God's firstborn son isn't saved, he's sacrificed. Jesus is what allows God's wrath and judgment to pass over us. Think about Jesus on the cross. His flesh is destroyed. And yet in that destruction, he's raised up three days later in victory over death. As Christians, we look to this sacrifice as debt paid on our behalf. Jesus' death is what God accepts as the payment. And it allows him to pass over us. So when we talk about our flesh, when we talk about our flesh, we talk about sin and evil being our old nature, our flesh. But that isn't the nature of Jesus. If you read about him, you know that he lived the perfect life. Sin-free. And yet, his flesh is still sacrificed on our behalf. This is the good news. That God's judgment is satisfied for those who place their faith in Jesus. His judgment on us is satisfied based on Jesus' sacrifice. So then when Paul finishes up, he says this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So go back and think about this truth for all of us that our flesh needs to be destroyed, right? Because sin has to be destroyed. None of us are perfect. And that first option is that we can work on destroying sin in community. But what does that actually look like? There's no end to it. Many of you feel this. It doesn't mean that we don't strive. It doesn't mean that we don't try. But it never ends. The sins I want dead won't die. We will continue to sin and we'll continue to confess and we'll continue to repent. But ultimately, we won't achieve it. We won't achieve perfection. But option two was worse. Be cast out of the church and don't even try. Be outside the people of God and just be completely blind and unaware to sin. But here's the difference. In the church, in the fellowship of believers, following Jesus, we, dis- we will receive God's judgment just like the people outside the church. Right? That's what Paul says. We'll ju- be judged inside the church, we'll be judged outside the church. But he doesn't look at our striving or how successful we are. He instead looks at the flesh of his son, Jesus. So for those of us in Jesus, flesh is judged. Flesh is destroyed, but it's not our flesh. It's not our flesh. The flesh of the perfect one is destroyed in our place. So we're hidden in Christ. God judges us not on our merit because our merit is completely and utterly unfulfilling. But he judges us on the merit of one who is perfect. You want to know who's excommunicated? Jesus was. Outside the city, forsaken by God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was excommunicated so we won't be. His flesh is destroyed so ours won't be. Ours can be new because his was destroyed. So believer in the room, we will continue to try. 
but we do so from a place where we know flesh has already been destroyed. Not looking to be perfect, not looking to finally finish sinning, but looking at one whose flesh was already destroyed in our place. Outside of knowing Jesus in a way that saves, outside of knowing him in the fellowship of believers, this is what's scary, that God will judge also. But here's the difference again. Outside of knowing Jesus in a way that saves, God will judge you on your merit. And brothers and sisters in the room, we know that that is scary because we have fallen in sin time after time after time after time. They will be judged not on Jesus' flesh, but on their own. So we know, we know that it, it's impossible to measure up unless somebody has measured up in our place. And that somebody for us is Jesus. So when we send somebody outside the church, it's not to that end. It's so that they might see their desperate need for Jesus, wake up, and run back. It would be, unhor- it, it would be horribly unloving to let any of you sit in this in this room, sit in this congregation and believe that you know Jesus when you don't. And the simple answer that the Bible gives us is that people who know Jesus are working to destroy sin. And when we send somebody outside the church, our hope is that they run back to community and sit at the feet of Jesus with us, equally imperfect equally unable to strive for what we desire. In Matthew 23, Jesus says that when some people will meet him, he will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. So when we, when we discipline to the point of excommunication, we're saying we think this is what Jesus would say to you and we don't want it to be true. I don't want that to happen to any of you. I don't want it to happen to me. But we have assurance when we, f- we know that we're waging war on sin. Even if we're losing that war, we know it's already been won by Jesus on the cross. We as the church, this is what Paul's saying, don't be arrogant. We as the church have to be loving enough to put people outside the church who actually don't know Jesus in hopes that they would come back to him or come to him for the first time. Lay at his feet with us and surrender to him. Flesh destroyed, but spirit saved. So what does this look like for us as we wrap up to live in the church? Here's the beauty of how 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 manifests, right? And what we talked about last week, and when we talk about the Holy Spirit coming, those in Christ who have been given the spirit of, of, of knowledge and power, which means we're aware of this mystery that, that Nick prayed about, this mystery has been uncovered for us, and we've been given the power to fight sin. Our flesh is being put to death. But with the spirit also, we've been given community. Community is a grace and gift from God. It means that we aren't asked to walk in holiness alone, right? We need the local church to confess too, to repent too, to watch over us. Look, I went through years of my life in college um, where I completely and totally believed that I could be part of the people of God without being part of his people on Sunday or throughout the week. 
So I walked out my Christian life reading Christian nonfiction and being utterly numb to sin. That season of my life was dark. I was utterly sinful in behavior, but I was also arrogant to believe that I didn't need the church to fight it, that I could do it alone. So for me, the local church is a grace, right? It's where we belong. It's where we are. We have the safety net of brothers and sisters who love us and care about us. We are made to be the people of God in the people of God, purging evil among us and purging evil in us. Not by our own work, but through his perfect work. Followers of Jesus unfortunately won't stop sinning until Jesus returns or we die. But followers of Jesus also have declared war on sin. There will never be discipline for those battling sin. Right? That's just what followers of Jesus do. So the church is a, is a place of true love, really. Not arrogant, but true love. It's a hospital for the sick, and the sick get treatment. They don't refuse it. So we hold each other accountable, and we fight sin in ourselves and each other. We join arms in prayer and repentance and confession and forgiveness. This is love, not arrogant acceptance but love, care for one another. We need it. I need it. And the doctor in this scenario isn't the pastors. It's Jesus, right? Head of the church, cutting out our sin and treating us. But to, to keep using the analogy, what doctor has ever taken chemo for their patients, right? Saying, you know, you need chemo to fight your cancer. I'll do it for you, and it'll work. So the, the analogy breaks down because we have a surgeon greater than any on the earth. It's a great warm blanket of the gospel, the good news. It is for me because even as a pastor, it means brothers and sisters watch over my soul. It means they pray for me. They hold me accountable in my marriage and in my future as a father. Right? I'm not alone. And ultimately, they remind me often that my station before Jesus is one passed over. Passed over by death and welcomed. The, we sing that sometimes, a rock of ages cleft for me, that Jesus has hidden me in himself. My brothers and sisters remind me of my station before God, which is accepted. So in a second, we're going to eat Jesus' perfect flesh and drink his sacrificial blood as a reminder. Every week, we celebrate a Passover feast. A perfect one was destroyed on our behalf, and it's by his blood that we're passed over by death. We remember this by eating and drinking. And here at Sojourn, we're willing to discipline each other and submit to the discipline of one another. And we do this out of true, bold, Honest love, not arrogance. This is a place of forgiveness. Jesus says 70 times 7, not just 7, which he's meaning infinite by that. We're a place of forgiveness. Let's fight sin together, resting in the work that one who has sacrificed on our behalf and on whose merit God will judge us. Let's run that race together.
And would you remember that as we come to the table this morning? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for thank you for your surgical removal of my sin day after day after day. Lord, I confess that I get weary of this and numb to it. But right now, Lord, I invite you through my community to hold me accountable to sin. Lord, would you graciously um, remind us that, that in this church, in these brothers and sisters, we have warmth, comfort, true love, not fake, arrogant acceptance, but true love, acceptance on who they actually are, which is in your image, Jesus. And ultimately, Lord, thank you for your flesh that was destroyed so that my flesh won't be eternally. I'm sorry for the cross, Lord. I'm sorry that you hung there instead of me. But as we sang, in doing so, your grace declares your glory. Your grace declares your glory, your grace to us in the cross, in fighting our sin for us, declares your glory. No other God can say that. No other religion can boast that. Certainly not out there. Your name is majesty. And you have done what no other striving has accomplished. My striving or anybody in this room's to to defeat sin, but you have done it. So Lord, awaken us to sin in our life. May we purge it from each other and ourselves and ultimately rest in the grace that we're not done, but you have finished it for us, so we're done. The great tension that we'll keep trying, but it's already done. Our war won't be complete until you come back, so we invite you to come back. We love you. We trust you with this. And we pray it all in your name. Amen.